Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Deutschland ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steht. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Wachen... Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich... Hi, I'm Michelle. Hey, this is Ted, and welcome back to episode two of Spaßbremse. We are discussing another foundational topic today. Last week, we talked about the Hartz IV unemployment reform, in our view, the most important political event post-reunification. And this week, we are going to tackle reunification itself. This will be a two-part series. We will bring in an expert to interview And it's just very important to understand the process of how the country we live in was founded 30 years ago. Right. Yeah, absolutely. As Michelle said, you know, in, in addition to understanding how this shaped the social and political fabric of Germany itself, Germany as, you know, the most powerful country in Europe, um, how it actually became unified is really, really important and, and totally shaped politics far beyond its borders. You know, in, in addition to this representing the demise of socialism in Europe, it really changed the balance of power in Europe as well. So understanding the dynamics of reunification, we'll talk about the terminology a bit later and if that's the word you want to use, but how this worked really shaped, um, you know, obviously German politics, but, but fo politics far afield as well. And to start, what we want to do is really take issue with these overwhelmingly hopeful narratives of a kind of euphoric, like peaceful revolution that you get in the media when they cover reunification. You know, we recently had the 30th anniversary of German unification in October of 2020, so just, uh, just a few months back. And, you know, it's this typical fanfare of everyone saying how great it was, everyone came together. And, and and really this yeah like a, a very hopeful a very optimistic a very triumphant narrative but um you know the process was mostly peaceful of course and that, that's good but its economic and social injustices still reverberate in german society and that's what we want to look at and another note on this is that the idea of a uh, triumphalism is usually associated with the the US alleged victory over the USSR in the Cold War you know really showing that the the American model triumphed and freedom won and everyone everyone wanted to be like America and America gets rightly criticized for that point of view about the Cold War but Germany really had its own form of triumphalism and, and this this is that it allegedly showed that the Western system was better than the DDR and that the West could impose their way on their barbaric cousins in the East and sort of take them out of backwardsness. And overall, it's just it's just impossible to overstate the importance of all of this. You know, the, the phrase, the wall coming down, is sort of used as shorthand for the end of the Cold War, even though it was only a, a wall in one city of, of an entire continent. German unification is really seen as the focal point and the symbol of the end of the Cold War. And this event and how it's described, it's, you know, it's, it's quite literally the end of, of the history, uh, meaning like in terms of Fukuyama's famous thing, but also like it's when the history books end or when the history tour ends or when the Cold War documentary ends. You know, you take the, 
the walking tour of Berlin, and it's, oh, here's all the stuff that happened, blah, blah, blah. And then the wall came down, everyone ran together, and isn't it all great now? You know, we figured it out. It just, there's, there's nothing after that because it was a triumph. It must have been good. But as we're seeing, you know, all political realms worldwide, history definitely did not end at this point. Right. Germany just gets lauded as the pinnacle of democracy at this moment in history. Um, when you think of reunification, you may recall, as Ted said, these euphoric images, perhaps from January 15th, 1990. There's some pretty incredible footage of citizens storming the Stasi headquarters, lining the stairways and tossing papers over the banisters. Uh, this idea of the people taking matters into their own hands, rising up against a dictatorship, culminating in preventing the Stasi from shredding files, right? And that was the people that intervened. Another phrase that comes to mind is Wir sind das Volk, we are the people, a rallying cry that defined the peaceful protests. Eventually, a shift to the slogan, Wir sind ein Volk, we are one people, took place. There's a well-known protest sign, maybe you've seen it, cut out in the shape of Germany and painted with diagonal stripes in German flag colors, on which appears, Wir sind ein Volk. And there's a bit of a controversy surrounding this phrase and this shift in phrasing, because archival work that has attempted to date the shift from we are the people to we are one people has really been inconclusive. The distinction is, of course, crucial to understand the wishes of protesters out in the streets, whether or not citizens were demanding more direct democracy, saying we are the people, or wishing for a unified Germany hinges on one word. And so, yeah, today we want to talk about how unification really wasn't this simple and doesn't conform to any of these narratives. But just a quick note on terminology as we go back and forth. Um, West Germany, the Bundesrepublik Deutschland, the, the Federal Republic of Germany, um, we'll refer to that as West, maybe the BRD or the FRG, the, the East, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik. Uh, you'll often hear it described as the DDR or the GDR. Those, those are interchangeable. So just so there's no mix up in case we kind of switch up some acronyms at any point. And so as, as we mentioned, you know, this, this extreme focus on the peaceful revolution leaves out what happened after the protests and after they signed the treaty to come together um, or really have the East be absorbed into the West. And while it's true that there wasn't really much physical violence during the reunification, with a couple exceptions that we'll get into, um, the economic violence was immense and created a huge level of destruction and uh, deprivation throughout the East. And really, this term reunification that, that's always used in, in mainstream outlets is really a misnomer. You'd think that if there was going to be something that unified, it would imply some kind of reconciliation of two different systems into one. This isn't that story. This is the story of the complete absorption of a weaker state into a stronger one, which is why a lot of people will refer to it as an Anschluss or annexation. It's a bit of a loaded term in German history because that's what was described as um, what was done in 1938. But 
the the idea being that there was one state that engulfed a smaller state. And I think that's a fair description of what happened in this case. And that's not just kind of, you know, lefty journalists or academics using this term. Um, one of our, our favorite Germans of all time, Wolfgang Schäuble, uh, which I'm sure we'll do some more episodes on the economic mischief he caused decades later. But way back in 1990, he was still doing some bad stuff as the West German interior minister. And he proclaimed to a delegation of some people from the DDR that, quote, dear friends, the GDR is joining the Federal Republic, not vice versa. What is happening here is not a unification of two equal states. So making it very clear that he had no time to negotiate with the East or incorporate any of their social model into what would become unified Germany. And this is, like I said, back in 1990. And so we'll get into all these mechanics, um, actually, of the, the economic ways in which Germany was reunified and what happened to East German industry. We'll get into that in the second episode. But the gist of it is that the East German economy was effectively sold for parts, and the West basically later blamed the economic ruin in the East on the East's own backwardness and not Western policies that were enacted during reunification. And so the dismantling of the East German economy was overseen by this agency called the Treuhandanstalt, which undertook the privatization of many former state-owned businesses. And what happened was that a lot of viable businesses were shut down in order to avoid competition with the West. Valuable assets were given away at fire sale prices. The result was massive deindustrialization and job loss in the East. And so this ongoing economic disparities that you have between East and West, which are a huge issue still today, and we'll also cover a bit more in the second episode, um, those were not just the result of the different economic systems. Those were the result of concrete policies enacted post-unification. And so what this all does, it just it totally flies in the face of this triumphalist, hopeful narratives that surround so-called reunification. Right, because Germany today isn't all that unified, due in large part to the legacy of Treuhand. And we'll talk more about the lingering divisions in German society in part two of this little series. But to set the scene about why East Germans were actually in the streets protesting, Ted can give us a little bit of background. By the late 1980s, the economic and political situation in Germany was pretty grim. Um, you know, there were certainly a lot of strengths about the DDR's socialist system, especially with regard to education and health, for example. But the system was really not operating at its prime in the late 80s. And something we want to do another episode about in the future is comparing the Eastern and Western German economies during the Cold War, looking at a few of the, the myths that you might get about um, about what, what happened where and, and, and who was better off in what ways and so on. But at this time, you know, there were widespread shortages um, and also declining support from the Soviet Union, both political and economic. Um, this is, you know, the, the Soviet Union is also going downhill at this time. And what was clear and sort of primed the scene for, for this political movement was it was clear that the political constraints weren't as tight as they used to be, and there was less direction from Moscow 
than there was earlier in the Cold War. For example, the, the Brezhnev Doctrine was repealed by Gorbachev in 1988. Um, that was the doctrine which said that basically any adjustment to existing state socialism within the Warsaw Pact could warrant um, an intervention because it was it was an attack on all socialism, sort of like the basically like the Warsaw Pact equivalent of NATO's Article Five, where an attack on one is an attack against all. But it's like any socialist backsliding or whatever you want to call it can trigger an intervention and. Gorbachev had explicitly said that doesn't apply now in the way that they had used it to retroactively justify something like the 1956 intervention in Hungary or um, in Prague in 1968. Also going on at this time, there were protests sweeping the Eastern Bloc. Um, Hungary had removed its border restrictions with Austria, sort of the first real hole in the so-called Iron Curtain. There were huge marches in Leipzig and lots of outmigration from East Germany as people people wanted to move west for better economic fortunes. And it really looks like uh, Hanukkah, who is the, the GDR chairman, um, it looks like his government is really losing control of the situation at the time. Right. So to get to those huge marches in Leipzig, it may help to understand that opposition to the DDR regime was organized in various forms, one of those being around theater and the arts, another being around the church. And in 1989, the summer of 1989, this organization was, these networks were increasing in size. And what started happening every Monday was this phenomena called the Montagsdemonstration in Leipzig. What started that September 1989 with a group of 1,000 people calling for Reisefreiheit statt Massenflucht, that's like freedom of movement instead of mass exodus, and Stasi raus, that's get rid of, getting rid of the secret police. This group saw an increase in its numbers each week, each Monday protest, rising to 70,000 at the beginning of October. Protesters were calling for more civil liberties, demanding freedom of speech and increased political participation. You see, you start to see the number of protesters basically doubling each week. So by the end of October 89, you've got 300,000 people in Leipzig alone. These protests also um, took place in other East German cities as well. Another slogan that was used, hence the peaceful revolution, was no violence. And these protests culminated in the most well-known and significant demonstration at Berlin's Alexanderplatz on November 4th, which had estimates of one million people who showed up. Five days later, the wall comes down. Zunächst nach Ost-Berlin. Hier waren die Menschenmassen erst durch die Innenstadt gezogen, um sich dann zu der rund dreistündigen Kundgebung auf dem Alexanderplatz zu versammeln. One of the people involved at that protest, at that demonstration, was a religious scholar and regime critic Friedrich Schorlemmer. Jetzt spricht Pfarrer Friedrich Schorlemmer. Ich spreche über Solidarität und Toleranz. And when he reflected back on that day, he says, quote, at Alexanderplatz, D stood first and foremost for democracy, not for Deutschland. 
Ohne die wache Solidarität aller demokratischen Kräfte wird es nicht gelingen, eine lebensfähige Demokratie aufzubauen. Die Zersplitterung der Demokraten ist stets die Stunde der Diktatoren. So these dissident intellectuals that participated in these popular uprisings, they really imagined a more democratic system, but still a socialist one. Maybe Ted, you can explain what that means. Yeah. Um, so, so like Michelle explained with with people's various demands and 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 the, the actual quotes, uh, that's all. That's backed up by polling as well. Uh, for example, Der Spiegel, uh, the the famous magazine in Germany. Uh, did a poll on, in uh, uh, sorry December of 1989, and 71% of protesters, so this is about six weeks after the wall is coming down, uh, even at this point, 71% of protesters didn't hope for unification, but they wanted a more democratic DDR. And so, you know, it's a, it's a desire for what they thought of as the real socialism, not, not a move to capitalism. And so it, it sounds a bit strange, actually, But in a lot of ways, you can see the protests in Germany and a lot of other Eastern Bloc countries when these, these regimes come down. These protests, although they were against communist regimes, were almost protesting from the left against them, not, not demanding for a move to capitalism. And so I think that's really important to know because what they are demanding and the economic and political systems that they got after the protests are very different. And it's not like there's this one-to-one -one where everyone was protesting and they all wanted to be like, I want to be a startup founder. I want to own stocks. I want to eat McDonald's. Like this is not at all what was going on. They wanted, yeah, a more, a more just and egalitarian socialist system, not a capitalist system in, in most cases. Yeah. They were calling for reform and what happened after this becomes quickly a very complex timeline and in a matter of months you see the political forces at work in kind of forcing these two states together we're just gonna run through kind of an overview this is not in any way complete yeah and so it's yeah it's really i mean it, from from november 89 until about just just about a year later you have this jam-packed series of events and so we'll, we'll try to run through it as as methodically as we can um, but it's it's definitely worth going and, and doing some research and, and reading about the stuff and we'll include a couple of readings in the show notes about it because it's it makes your head spin to realize how much changed so quickly and there's like monumental historical fashion so on the 7th slash 8th of november we are still in 1989 the government of the ddr and the politicians in the SED stepped down. After that, the fall of the Berlin Wall happens on the 9th of November. A historic moment tonight. The Berlin Wall can no longer contain the East German people. Thousands pouring across at the Bornholmer Bridge. Good evening, live from the Berlin Wall. Right, in this, this famous story that you've probably heard about this sort of mistaken announcement about uh, the suspension of travel restrictions and so on. Um, We won't get into that as it's a it's a, a bit a bit of a cliche. So yeah, the, the the wall ends up coming down, and even at this time and the the next day across West Germany there was a there was a report circulated, and it was kind of summarizing the goals of the main um, 
opposition groups in East Germany. And although they were opposing the regime at the time, they, like we said, you know, they still supported the existence of the DDR as a unique entity and wanted this vision of democratic socialism and guaranteed civil rights. And so they were all supporting a reformed GDR. And that's, you know, again, something we, we keep forgetting. And so, you know, you see that in the marches, you see that in the actual reports about the opposition groups, you see that in the polling. There wasn't this huge demand to move to capitalism and to be totally um, molded in to West Germany, at least not at this time. And so in you have this sort of uh, little interregnum where they're between November 1989 and March 1990, a reformer, a socialist reformer, Hans Modrolov, um, his transitional government takes over. It's really the, the last time there's guaranteed to be an SED government, SED, uh, the Socialist Unity Party of Germany, the, the governing party in East Germany throughout the entire period of its existence. And so that's the last time they're constitutionally guaranteed to, to remain in power before there are going to be new elections in March of 1990. And so at this time, they're trying to enact some reforms. They're, they're trying to, to prepare for what they think might happen, whether that's, that's unification or a kind of agreement between the two states. And they really didn't know how short the time frame for their ability to reform would be, really only, only about four months, because of what happened in that March election. And, and we'll get into that and why that was such a surprise and so this is a, it's a very weird period in, in German history, the, this, this like four-month period. And there's, there's a good interview on this that's also going to be in the show notes. So, so definitely keep an eye out for that. At the end of November, on the 28th, Chancellor Kohl, that's the West German chancellor, introduces a 10-point program to overcome the division of Germany and Europe. Later that week, I guess, um, on the 7th of December, roundtable talks with DDR leadership and these grassroots opposition groups that Ted has been talking about start taking place, in which the grassroots opposition groups are still calling for democratic reforms and not reunification. So we're in December at this point. Right. And this, you know, just, just to really drive home this point um, and, and the idea that uh, what was the demands and the expectations coming from the East at this time were very different than what was coming from the West. And that, that's super critical to understand in this whole process. And so I mentioned that Schäuble quote about how, you know, this is not this is not a reconciliation between two different parties. This is you play by our rules. And so this, this is backed up by what uh, Matthias Platzik said, who was later the minister president of Brandenburg um, in the early 2000s, and actually throughout the 2000s. His quote was, there was a, quote, Anschluss mentality in the unification negotiations. There's a lot that went wrong in those talks. We tried to explain to the negotiating partners in the West that when a society takes on a new form with a smaller group joining a larger group, East Germany was a, just a smaller country than the West, continuing the quote, it's important to include some elements or symbols from the smaller group for the sake of harmony. That way, the smaller group won't feel like they've been overwhelmed and run over. But there was nothing that the smaller group left in United Germany. It was, look, children, we'll take you in, we'll pay for it all, but forget your demands. 
you know, it's it, it's describing it from the other side of the negotiating table from from what Schäuble said. And so it, it's pretty clear that these groups are demanding democratic reforms in the East. They still want a form of socialism. The West is having none of that. And so it's this imposition and, and really this this domination of the East by the West, not unification in, in any true sense of the word. Yeah, and moving into the next year, 1990, on the 1st of March, we have the founding of the Treuhandanstalt. This is the Treuhand, the trust agency. We'll get into this as well also later. But this is really important. Is The idea was initially for the Treuhand to kind of was to take care of the East German industry and keep those afloat and maybe reform them a bit. But but the idea is to, is to protect that industry during the transition. And so this is initially a very different goal than what it ended up being because it was founded before the election later in March with a more egalitarian idea and less the sort of shock therapy, um, as, as it was called elsewhere as well, of just implementing capitalism as fast as possible. And so... Yeah, the, the Troyhand was, was not designed necessarily to be this tool of economic violence on the East, and it ended up being like that because of a change in how it was implemented and a change in the East German government. Right, like the first iteration of this Troyhand actually wanted to provide some stake for the DDR citizens in their economy after 40-some years of not having that. And like Ted said, the following iterations had a very different goal in mind. On the 18th of March, we have the first free parliamentary election in the DDR, which effectively the CDU wins. How does that work? What does that mean? Right. This this was a huge, a huge upset. This this 18 March 1990 election is is probably the most important election you've never heard of, or or one of them, um, unless you're a, a, a big German history buff. It's probably not that well known to you. The idea, so this was really the first open election in, in the DDR, as Michelle said, the, the, the first and the last. And the expectation was that the SPD would do quite well, you know, the, the party of the workers in the West. And so it kind of made sense that, that a socialist country with, with a lot of working class would, would, would gravitate towards that party. And, and that's what the polls were supporting. And that's what the, what the polls were showing. That's what everyone predicted. Also running in this was, um, it was called the, the Alliance for Germany. But basically, think of it as the CDU. And there was the PDS, the Party of Democratic Socialism, which is the successor to the SED, the ruling party in the East. And... Like I said, it was predicted that the SPD would win, um, and they probably could have governed in in cooperation with the PDS, and you would have had a much slower form of reunification and not this rapid economic shock therapy. But the CDU wins, and this completely changes the entire trajectory of how reunification goes. Like this, this election is the total crux, and one of these these real turning points on which history hinged for this hugely important event. And, you know, why, why was this? Like, what, what happened? A huge amount of this is that Helmut Kohl, who was the CDU chancellor of West Germany, really did what I think we can consider like a complete political masterstroke. 
And he dangled the opportunity of introducing the West German mark in the East at a one-to-one equivalent. What that means is that the purchasing power of the East would go way up in the short run. It was valued at about four to one. And so if you had taken your East German mark and gone to the West, you would have had very low purchasing power. Matching it at one to one gave people an incentive to say, oh, this is this is going to be in my economic best interest in the short term because a lot of people wanted to go to the West and visit, and see family and spend money. And it made them feel like equal citizens not having their currency be valued so much less than the Western German mark. And so that was a huge factor in why so many people surprisingly voted for the CDU in that election. And everything kind of seems like preordained in retrospect, right? But but a currency union was not at all predetermined. You know, there were proposals to retain both currencies or at least integrate them over a longer period of time and kind of let the East German competitiveness catch up with the West and then increase the value until they eventually unify. Because a low exchange rate would have been needed to maintain East German competitiveness in international markets. And this is especially true because the Soviet Union had declined. The East used to export a lot of its goods to the Soviet Union. And so the East needed to make stuff to export it to keep its economy going. And if you value the East German currency on par with the West, that makes their goods super, super expensive in markets and totally destroys the competitiveness of East German industry. So while it gave individuals a decent amount of purchasing power, what it did was it crippled the industry. And so it's it's really like this, this double coup doing this, because on one hand, it allows the CDU to seize power in this critical election in the East. And on the other, it completely cripples East German industry for later, which then provides a pretext for the privatization of these allegedly super uncompetitive, super inefficient businesses. But one of the main reasons they were so inefficient is because the currency was overvalued. And so, like I said, it's really a, a, a total a total masterstroke on Cole's part for a, a very nefarious and, and disastrous end for a lot of people. Continuing on our timeline, on the 18th of May in 1990, the states signed the May Treaty, more specifically the Vertrag über die Schaffung einer Währungswirtschafts- und Sozialunion zwischen der Deutschen Demokratischen Republik und der Bundesrepublik Deutschland. I knew I wouldn't make it all the way through that. That's basically establishing a monetary, economic and social union between the DDR and West Germany. Right. And this treaty, uh, which was, you know, reflected um, the, the new political constitution of East Germany and the, the, the Volkskammer, the, the People's Chamber, their parliament, which is now filled with almost a majority of, of CDU politicians. And so it had a lot of provisions that were a lot more what we'd call neoliberal or kind of right-wing, uh, economically liberal than you would have had otherwise. And so stuff like provisions of the constitution of the German Democratic Republic relating to its former socialist and political system shall no longer be applied in situations where they would conflict with free market principles like, quote, ownership of land and means of production by private investors. So basically invalidating the 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. At this, this uh, really imposing this idea that your your system is out, our system is in the soziale Marktwirtschaft, the social market economy, which, as we discussed in our previous episode, was about to become a lot less sozial in about a decade after this. So it was uh, quite quite a dramatic decision. Yeah, and that treaty goes into effect on the first of July. At the end of August, August 31st, we have another treaty. This is the Unification Treaty, basically. And I'm not going to read the name this time in German. <laughs> and so what this does, this this really finishes it. This is when uh, East Germany, as we know it, is is officially dissolved. And so, yeah, the, the parliament um, voted to voted to dissolve itself and completely incorporate into West Germany. There were five new Bundesländer, federal states from the east that would then join the west. And the, the Grundgesetz, the German constitution, would then apply over the entire territory. And this is the 3rd of October, 1990, what's always known now as the Unification Day. But what you can see here is that it wasn't such a smooth transition. There was a lot of contestations. There were these odd contingencies in the way things worked. Uh, there were a lot of misconceptions about what the demands of the various parties are. And it's nice, I guess, in a lot of ways that the, you know, something like Berlin is no longer divided and people aren't, aren't getting shot trying to run across. But it's not the hopeful story that it's portrayed, um, even on a political basis. It's not like everybody agreed and, and came to terms with this so easily. And that's before we've really gotten into any of the economic details and actually the injustice with which the East was integrated into the West and the lingering disparities that come from that process. And that, that's going to be episode two for you. But this was really a way to just give you an outline of the political events, how everything went down, the chronology, and just getting an idea of uh, whose interests are being served by this process and whose are not. Exactly. So if we haven't lost you at this point, you have all the context you need and the general timeline to understand what Treuhand really was. And in part two, we will tell you about the actual process of this economic integration and get into the nitty gritty of what happened to state owned enterprise in the former East. That's right. And we're also going to have uh, at a minimum one guest to interview about this to get some actual real um, real life experience of what it was like to go through unification from the perspective of the East, because I think you hear the, the Western perspective all the time and, and the, the Eastern one, not as much. And so we, we want to give that to you. And yeah, we, we're going to get into all the details. And I think that's all we have. Have anything more, Michelle? No. That's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.